This week, as part of our special holiday lineup, we've got the fourth in a series of five radio shows we produced with WNYC. You may have heard one or two of them on your local NPR station already. And if you did, you'll know it's still the same click-here stories about people making and breaking our digital world, just in a little different format. In today's show, we decided to put a lot of our reporting from our trip to Ukraine all in one place. It's an episode we're calling Lessons from the World's First Hybrid War. Take a listen. ChatGPT, AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Just as a warning, there are some sounds of explosions in the show and some strong language that we've bleeped out. We begin with a new wrinkle in warfare, a new kind of fighter, the cyber warrior. And in this case, they are mild-mannered IT professionals by day and become cyber mercenaries for Ukraine by night. And for more than a year, this all-volunteer force has been defending Ukrainian networks and hacking into Russian ones and punching back in very surprising ways. And we begin our story with one of those people, a man in Kyiv who goes by the very digity name, Admin. Um, can I ask about your cyber background and education? Are you like a computer science guy? Mm, more like enthusiast. <laughs> okay. That you, you love computers. Yes. And, and do you have a military background? Mm, sort of. What does that mean? Um, it's not the question that I can answer you fully because uh, it may uh, lead to a better understanding of what kind of person I am. We agreed to keep his identity a secret because first, he's talking to us from Kyiv, and second, because he's part of a resistance movement there. But he's not a member of those territorial defense forces fighting Russia on the ground. The person we're talking to has older parents, so he said he couldn't go to the front to fight. I need to stay closer to my family, to support them. It's my uh, duty as a man, as a human being, to be closer to them, to protect them and to help them. So instead, he decided to do something a little different. He began working with a cyber force. Admin is one of eight administrators trying to organize volunteers helping Ukraine fight Russia in cyberspace. They're a diverse group of IT and cybersecurity professionals from all over the world, and they call themselves the Ukrainian IT Army. And while as a general matter, they aren't the kind of skillful hackers that take down a power grid or blow up rockets on the launch pad, they are very good at being irritating, really irritating. Admin and people like him post targets on the IT Army's Telegram channel, and their digital militias just get to work. The channel has some 180,000 subscribers, and they claim to have hacked the Moscow Stock Exchange and crapped into the state's railway ticketing systems. They've hobbled ministries, Russian banks, and even media outlets like TASS. And what makes this all different is that for the first time in history, just about anyone can join this fight, right where they are just for the asking. I joined uh, volunteers on the first day of invasion because I wanted to help people, uh, but I needed to stay with my family. I joined uh, um, a few different groups, and uh, one of them invited me to join uh, an IT army. I'm sure there are a lot of people like you who want to do something to help, who maybe their best skill is not you know, grabbing a rifle, but instead grabbing a keyboard? Um, yes, we, uh, we are deciding what uh, type of targets to attack, what should we do next, uh, how to organize people in a better way so we can um, achieve our goals faster and easier. Using Telegram, they developed bots to block Russian news sites. They've created a system to log and report Russian troop movements. There's even online lessons on how to make Molotov cocktails. And you could say that Admin has developed a specialty. He focuses on misinformation. It's important to, to shut down uh, some of the main information platforms for the Russian people, where they actually receive news. Uh, one of the target types for us is uh, online news 
sites, but I'll stay quiet about the details. The early volunteers for this IT brigade were thousands of hackers and IT professionals around Ukraine. Then, as the fighting grew more fierce on the ground, something shifted. The IT army became a global swarm. And the pylon didn't just include Ukrainian cybersecurity officials. Hacktivists from around the world started showing up and asking what they could do to help. People like Squad 303, a group of programmers from Poland who managed to get their hands on nearly 200 million Russian cell phone numbers and email addresses. They built a site that allows anyone in the world to message any of those numbers and then tell them the truth about the war. Then hacktivist collective Anonymous stepped up. And we, we saw the propaganda and the disinformation. And we, we just decided, like, something needs to be done about this. This is Discordian. He's a kind of spokesperson for Anonymous. And we started talking amongst ourselves and being like, hey, can we turn this into an operation? It was like day one of the invasion. And uh, you see this Belarusian arms manufacturer being hacked. And, uh, you know, there's training manuals, there's trade secrets, and those are the same kind of weapons that are now, at this moment, being used to bomb Ukraine. So Anonymous released those training manuals, and they had other little projects. Russia Today was taken offline for multiple, multiple days during the initial attack. Um, You mean the news channel? Yeah, the news channel, yes. It, it was unreachable for days uh, because of Anonymous, because they also engage in a lot of this disinformation that we see out there. For example, uh, disinformation that Ukrainians would just accept the soldiers coming into their country and they would be happy because they also speak Russian, which is a completely weird reason to accept an invasion, right? Oh, you, you speak Russian, we speak Russian, you're welcome here. No, you're invading my country, get the out. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like going against that narrative is also very important to us. They've hacked into Russian websites and posted casualty numbers. They've provided photographs. And then they had this other particularly inspired little gem. There was this operation to write Google reviews in Russian restaurants to, to, uh, to, to say what is going on there to get around censors. Anonymous is very creative. Hackers have always made mischief. What's different this time is that the people hacking on behalf of Ukraine are cybersecurity professionals, the people businesses call on when their networks have been compromised, the people typically on the other side of the hack. And this call to arms, or call to hack, has put the concept of wartime cyber operations into an entirely new light, and no one is quite sure what to make of it. Government officials usually see this collective action in cyberspace as a kind of hooliganism. But now, it's a new dimension of war. We have a martial law here in Ukraine. And uh, I don't think that uh, uh, appealing to moral principles works, since our enemy doesn't have any principles. This is Viktor Jora. Until just recently, he was one of Ukraine's top cybersecurity officials. And this was from one of his press conferences early in the war. And even back then, he made clear that Ukraine had to fight fire with fire in cyberspace. They're killing innocent people, children, women. They're firing hospitals and nuclear plants, bringing threats to the whole world. Enter the IT army. While we can't verify how big it really is, Jura told us... Probably up to half a million cybersecurity professionals or for IT professionals of students uh, and uh, a lot of volunteers from, uh, uh, from other countries. Jora was in charge of the Ukrainian equivalent of our Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. And his job, like CISA's, was to protect the nation's networks from attack. The power grid, communications, hospitals. And then, back in November, Jora was fired. He was arrested and detained on charges of misappropriation of funds. It had to do with some purchase of software for the nation. He says an independent investigation will ultimately clear him. And while his fortunes have changed, it doesn't erase what Russia has been doing to Ukraine in cyberspace for years now. 
Ukraine witnessed the most uh, disruptive uh, cyber attacks uh, in the history over the last eight years. Uh, and uh, we, were, we were working hard on uh, strengthening our uh, cybersecurity infrastructure for, for the last one or two years. I suppose we were well prepared for this uh, cyber war. Well prepared for war for a few reasons. Ukraine has been a testbed for Russian cyber attacks for years. Russians hacked Ukraine's elections commission. They shut down websites. The Russian group known as Sandworm turned out the lights in Kyiv for hours, just because they could. Parts of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, went dark. Russia appears to have figured out how to crash a power grid with a click. And the attacks kept getting worse. The cyber weapon NotPetya started in Ukraine in June of 2017. It quickly spread, paralyzing major companies and causing more than $10 billion in damage. Ukraine has learned from past experience, so its networks are harder to hack. It has, by design, created thousands of internet service providers. So if adversaries take one down, there are dozens more lining up to take their place. They have a network of cybersecurity companies and partners who have spent years preparing for just this kind of battle. Among other things, the U.S. sent military cyber teams to Ukraine before the war. They were hunting for malware planted in their systems, and they worked side by side with Ukrainian hunt teams to make sure they'd been all cleaned out. But that doesn't mean all of this has been easy. When we come back, there's a problem with creating an all-volunteer cyber army. No one is in control. This is Click Here. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here. Today, we're looking at what Ukraine can teach us about the future of war. In the earliest days after the invasion, there was an unusual call to arms. Officials in Ukraine started calling for all kinds of volunteers, fighters, doctors, weapons experts, all the usual suspects, but for one very notable exception. Ukrainian officials asked anyone anywhere in the world who had hacking skills to get in touch. And one of the people who stepped up was this guy. Well, let's just go with Yanni. Yanni. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. Um, let's just say that I'm an IT professional and uh, I'm trained in cybersecurity. Where do you live? In Finland. And that's all I'm going to give for now. Yanni did reveal to us that he works in the cybersecurity industry and felt compelled to act. Basically, once I started hearing about civilians and children and women and elderly getting bombed or killed or starved is when I basically decided that I have to do something. So when he got an invite on Telegram to join the IT army, he jumped on it. What was the sign-up process like, or was there one? There wasn't any. That's, the, that's one of the big problems here, actually. Basically, anybody can join in and start doing whatever. So that's one issue. Another, which is a perennial hacker problem, is good old-fashioned bravado. Some members of the IT army are trying to show off, and they don't know what they don't know, which could have some unexpected consequences. When you do something 
like try these things on an on a scale like this you don't have chances for mistakes basically the kinds of mistakes made mostly by amateurs so the term in the US i don't know if this is a term in finland too is script kiddies yeah 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 okay script kiddie is somebody who pretends to be really good at hacking and that sort of thing but in fact copies a lot of code from other people and tries to pass it off on their own so they're sort of amateurs trying to look like professionals yeah exactly <laughs> you know this term yeah and do you, do you get the sense that there are a lot of script kiddies out there yeah the majority are unfortunately i mean it's almost like um you know in in the ukraine they're handing guns to everyone and a lot of them probably don't know how to shoot them yeah is it the same sort of thing pretty much pretty much that's not to detract from what they're doing or how well placed their intentions are it's just a fact admin the guy in kiev we talked to at the top of the show he said so himself the effort was a little chaotic in the beginning but they're trying to bring order at the start uh, we faced a few uh, problems uh, with the trust with uh, dependability on each other uh, right now i am uh, ready to say that uh, we became like uh, a hub for um, digital resistance here in Ukraine a hub for digital resistance but it was hard to tell who was friend and who was foe they knew that russian agents would be trying to infiltrate the group was a problem of trust that we faced at the start of the war it still haunts us it's uh, kind of hard to share some crucial information with the people you don't trust. So they set up systems to assess volunteers. They put together a steering committee. To protect against infiltration and sabotage, they silo information. Things are on a need-to-know basis. The group has special communications channels that only the leadership can access. And they have another committee that tries to bring some order to the hacking targets the IT army chooses. And the committee itself only comes together when there are big decisions to be made. uh if someone have uh, a question we don't really like put on a big uh, call for it we can discuss it fast enough uh, with the team is it important to make a decision quicker so yeah we can uh, make a call sooner with these systems in place they were able to take in and work with volunteers from Poland the United States the hacker collective anonymous people from all over the world I can't count the number of people who are busy with executing tasks but on a higher level I mean if we're talking about the decision makers it's around uh, 25 uh, general um, leaders all Ukrainian yes uh so the control of the IT army is in the hands of Ukrainian professionals yes So how big are you now? It's usually better to be quiet about the numbers. We still have more um, users from Ukraine because it's our uh, war, it's our problem, but it's always nice to see people joining from uh, other sides of the world cheering for us, trying to do their best to help. But they aren't just depending on the outside world. The IT army hosted a hackathon recruiting event in a Kyiv subway station recently in order to find talented young Ukrainians who can help the effort. And while the IT army certainly has not changed the course of the war, it's been very effective at one thing. It is a terrific irritant. Cybersecurity officials say that Russian state hackers who might otherwise have been working on ways to attack Ukraine are spending a lot of their time fending off these small attacks and network intrusions, all courtesy of this motley team of volunteers and they've managed to pull off some pretty amazing things last summer they were behind a denial of service attack that overwhelmed the networks at russia's equivalent of davos russia's president today giving his annual speech at the forum after a delay caused by what the kremlin calls massive cyber attacks they managed to delay president vladimir putin's opening speech not earth-shattering but definitely irritating it embarrassed putin it told the world Everything isn't just fine. Things aren't normal. And they created a system that allows people to log and report Russian troop movements. The Ukrainian government subsequently created its own app for that. 
The tricky thing is that with so many people working independently in the fog of war, moral and ethical lines start to blur. Consider this video the IT Army posted last year. It feels like something straight out of Mr. Robot, only it's Ukrainian. In the video, a digital face says the IT Army has leaked Russian documents and cracked into Russian television, all in a bid to try to reach the Russian public and tell them what's going on in the war. Then it gets a little disturbing. Photos of dead Russian soldiers begin to flash across the screen. It turns out members of the IT Army had taken it upon themselves to call Russian families directly to tell them that their kids had died in the war. And then they'd send them this photographic proof. Not in a nice way, but in a demoralizing, break-your-heart kind of way. It appeared the IT Army had found a way to get access to a powerful facial recognition program called Clearview AI, and then they used it to identify these soldiers. The incident raised a lot of questions. What other cyber and tech tools was the IT Army stockpiling? And what kind of precedent would this set? I do think that there are always unintended consequences from this. Michael Daniels spent more than four years as President Obama's cybersecurity advisor. And when we spoke early in the conflict, he said it was inevitable that the distinction between civilian and combatant would start to get murky. And to the extent that other countries see this model as beneficial and see various ways that they could use this kind of model outside of a war, outside of a conflict like this, that could be very problematic. The concern is that while the IT army appears to be hacking on the side of angels now, when the conflict ends, what will they do with their new skills? And will we look back and realize that this first hybrid war ended up training a whole new cohort of hackers? New keyboards for hire just itching for causes to hack for? You've just heard about Ukraine's IT army and how it posts Russian targets on his Telegram channel to get volunteers to attack them. But this digital warfare isn't just online. Ukraine's scrappy, MacGyver-esque innovations have popped up in lots of other surprising ways, too. And not just online technologies, but physical ones. Nothing more so than with drones, which have been a force multiplier in the war. Partly because, among other things, Kyiv loosened the regulations that govern the manufacture of drones in the earliest days of the conflict. There used to be just seven companies that were allowed to build drones for the military. Now there are more than a hundred. And with the proliferation of drones has come a heightened demand for people who can actually fly them. People like translator Marina Kurunza. It's like some uh, angry bee, you know, <laughs> the crazy bee with some virus inside. Marina is now a camera drone operator. It's scary, you know, it's scary when you turn it on. Uh, I, I think uh, Russian soldiers must uh, run away only uh, while hearing. Being on this side of the camera is new for Marina because she was also a fashion model. Smile. Smile. Photographers, they loved me, they invited me to have my pictures, so I was uh, also happy, you know. And uh, Marina has long dark hair and she looks a lot like the pop star Dua Lipa. And while she's beautiful and willowy and tall, she hates being typecast. Everybody saw me in that sphere because they said you were created for that uh, and you were born. But I never wanted because uh, my grandfather, he told me, you know, it's good that you have good appearance and good genetics uh, and you were born like a beautiful person. But uh, what you have inside, this is the most important and what you have in your brain, believe me. First, first things I wanted in my life is to be smart and then beautiful, really. When the invasion first began, Marina was determined to act like nothing out of the ordinary had happened. She had twin boys, 11 years old. I was sitting in the kitchen and I made the tea and I said, okay, uh, we will, I will just uh, protect the room. They will sleep till they wake up and uh, I will prepare breakfast like nothing happened. My mom was looking at me like I was crazy, but I said, no, we will not, no panic will be in our place. Everybody depends on my emotional health, right? So, uh, and, and started from that time, from the 24th of February, uh, I've been always like that. 
So she went about her normal routine, which included, rather improbably, Ukrainian Fashion Week. You could be excused for not knowing there's a huge fashion industry in Ukraine. In fact, the first Fashion Week was held decades ago, back in 1997. It was the first Fashion Week held in Eastern Europe. And Ukrainian Fashion Week is not just some rinky-dink pseudo-fashion event. It looks like one of those Pret-à-Porter runway shows in Paris. In fact, before the war, it took place twice a year. And it helped launch designers like Ivan Frovlov and Julie Pascal. You've seen Frolov's creation, but probably didn't know it. He's dressed Beyonce and Gwen Stefani. These days, Frolov is now making bulletproof vests. And at Ukrainian Fashion Week, Marina got recruited. Um, it was Ukrainian Fashion Week event. Uh, the uh, director of the show came to me and he told me that, I know that you love Ukraine. I know that you are not only beautiful, but you're smart. And then he introduced me to Valery. Valery Borovic. Are, are you wearing body armor right now? Yeah. Um, and do you have to wear that all the time? Not not all time because I am in uh, in special forces under counterintelligence of Ukraine. Valery is CEO of Alliance New Energy of Ukraine, and among other things, they actually manufacture drones. Not long after the war between Russia and Ukraine began, Valery Borovic had this idea. He wanted to start a drone training program just for women because. Many men go to zero line, go to army. And uh, women can help and want to help for protect of our country. That's from one of the school's promotional videos. Valery's drone school opened its doors last summer. He called it the Female Pilots of Ukraine. And the way he saw it, both sides of this conflict are looking for ways to beef up their fighting forces. Russia has gone to prisons to recruit convicts and is drafting young men right off the streets. Ukraine? It's leaning on its women. If girl can fly or drone, we can, we can see Russia soldier or tanks near our army. So the women can add to the war effort by being eyes for the army. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's like, like eyes for us. <laughs> Valery talks to a small group of his students in a field outside Kyiv. They're all bundled up against the cold in heavy parkas and snow pants and boots. The wind is howling. Marina says most of the classroom instruction for female drone pilots of Ukraine is outside. And they begin by learning in places far from the war's front lines. We are not on the location when the uh, people are just dying. And we are learning in Kiev, in the capital of Ukraine. Basic training lasts for about three weeks. But usually it was fun because we had coffee, some cookies, and we had good mental health, you know. The women learn from professional military drone pilots. Uh, some of us were piloting, uh, another were using the map. They start on drone simulators. We used on the computers, then we had um, the simulator. And if they do well on that part of the training, the group graduates to the outdoor part of instruction. The military drone pilots teach them the basics of controlling the drone, and then they give them a specific location they need to fly to. To the gas station, for example, just wait, make a couple of pictures. Marina, it turns out, is particularly good at interpreting maps to get the drone where it needed to go. For example, if I was checking where the drone goes, so I was standing behind the pilot and I would tell that, for example, you need to go like straight, then up 30 degrees or something like that. They've also been taught how to drop a virtual pin and mark where their drone might have spotted Russian troops or a cache of weapons or even where the drone might need to land. That information is later sent to Ukrainian forces or to nearby police so they can plan a response or retrieve a fallen drone. In less than a year, 100 women graduated from the drone flight program. 40 went into the military, and school says it has a waiting list of 200. 
When she isn't working as a translator and a fashion model or taking care of her kids, Marina is recruiting women for flight teams at the drone school. Uh, one is a professional model. Uh, another one, uh, she's a volunteer. She's uh, working for Fashion Week. And the th- third uh, girl, she's in showbiz. She is so active, smiling. And uh, each uh, woman is so different that uh, we can add something to each other. A lot of the women in the program trained to be scouts, helping the war effort from the relative safety of Kiev. And others go closer to the front line. Marina, for her part, has decided to stay back and teach. She's training other women to become drone operators. So I don't have to kill somebody. I I just can um, learn it very well and then give the coordinate, and then people will do what they need to do, you know. One of Ukraine's other best-kept secrets, until recently, is just how much it has MacGyvered plastic off-the-shelf drones to wreak havoc on Russian troops. Why are Ukraine's cheap, slow drones so successful against Russian targets? We must protect the life of our soldier. And uh, one drone, in general, uh, saves maybe 10 of our soldiers. The soldiers work around the clock, repairing, modifying, and arming consumer drones. This morning, apparent footage of drones being used to attack targets in Russia's capital. The drone attacks on the suburb of Moscow are believed to be the work of the Ukrainian intelligence community. It's the symbolic value of striking the Russian capital that counts far more than the actual explosive effect. Ukraine has been strapping grenades and TNT to its drones. And then they have them buzz Russian weaponry or apartment buildings or even the Kremlin before they release their payload. Val publicly denied that the Moscow attack came at the hands of his freshly minted female pilots. And Ukraine, for its part, hasn't taken formal responsibility for that attack either. The dilemma for Ukraine is that these drones are basically a flying bundle of communication systems and software, which means they're vulnerable. Russia has taken to transmitting electromagnetic fields above their soldiers that allow them to jam frequencies or send drones off course. They're also using radio transmitters to hijack the drones the women fly. Consumer drones follow whichever signal is strongest, so the Russians can sometimes spoof them into following their directions instead of those of the women. At one point last year, Russian operators began tracking the Ukrainian drone signatures to their source, the pilots on the ground. Once they'd found them, the Russians would call in mortar fire. We understand that if they see us, for example, in the middle of the field of some uh, area, you know, anything can happen. So it was actually dangerous. It became such an issue that Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation warned about it on his Twitter page. Marina said now it's part of the drone pilot school curriculum. They never launch from the same place twice. And the Ukrainian drone pilots have started to deploy countermeasures, something they call, appropriately enough, Olga. It's a simple black box that plugs into the drone's USB port and scrambles the signal in a way that makes it harder to hijack or locate it. Olga can block Russian system and Russian drones, and they cannot find us. More than a year after the war began, Marina says she never for a moment considered leaving Ukraine to wait out the war. And while she's not at the zero line, some of her students are. Girls who uh, has learned after me, they are on on the east of Ukraine right now. Maybe some people don't understand that woman, even uh, the most kind like me, you know, the, the, the one who will never uh, do something bad for any insect. If some invader comes to your country, I, I believe that many people, they just don't realize how strong women are. Now Marina is really using that brain her grandfather loves so much. The one he said so many years ago was the most important part of her. When I start speaking and telling what I'm doing, they say, hmm, really? Are you joking? Why do you need that? She needs to do that because she loves Ukraine. 
When we come back, how a deputy mayor with a few smartphones and an iPad is gathering the evidence that might bring perpetrators of atrocities to justice. This is Click Here. Stay with us. Blockchain, NFTs, AI. What does this mean for you and me? I'm Sherelle Dorsey, host of the TED Tech Podcast, where we bring you the latest innovations and biggest ideas in tech. Tech is evolving fast and it affects our lives, from the metaverse to the watches on our wrists. You'll learn why people in AI make good business partners, about our future self-driving robo-taxi, what the next generation of Siri, Alexa, Google looks like, and a lot more. Find TED Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It is called Internet. I use the World Wide Web information superhighway. Cybersecurity. Why do things go viral? Click here. I'm Dina Temple-Reston, and this is Click Here. Today, we're talking about the future of war and how technology is transforming modern warfare. In the battle between two tech-savvy nations, we've seen innovations like volunteer cyber armies and fashion models flying drones. And tech is making its presence felt in other, more fundamental ways, like holding Moscow accountable for what it's done. And that's what our next story is about. One woman's tech-forward approach to investigating one of the tragedies of this conflict, mass graves. Wherever they turn up, mass graves seem to offend something deep in the human conscience. They fly in the face of the universal instinct to honor the dead. There was mass graves where Russians executed people, digged the holes in the graves and hide them. That's Mahilia Skorek-Shaviska, the deputy mayor of Bucha, a leafy bedroom community just 15 miles from Kyiv. Officially, I'm Mahilina Skorek-Shkarivska, but uh, for my foreign friends, uh, I usually ask to call me Mika. I think it's easier now. And we're talking to Mika because of this special skill she has. She's really good at digitally organizing things. Before the war, she was in charge of digital innovation for the city of Bucha. Her job was to digitize and organize city records. She was supposed to look for ways to automate tax collection or parking tickets. And then Russian troops marched into Bucha. Global outrage grew today as more horrific revelations surfaced from Bucha, Ukraine. Who described brutal killings carried out by Russian forces, forces left behind a, quote, seen from a horror movie as they withdrew from areas near Kyiv. Nobody in Bucha expected uh, to become a, a place of tragedy, of Bucha tragedy. Human rights officials arrived in Bucha after Russian troops withdrew and found evidence of summary executions and torture. Residents talked about forced disappearances and civilians killed by sniper fire. And many of these victims ended up in mass graves, buried without identification. I'd always assumed that mass graves were the work of perpetrators, a ham-handed effort to cover up unspeakable crimes. But in Ukraine, that's only half the story. Here in Bucha, we have different kind of mass graves. Mika says that in many of the Russian-occupied cities in Ukraine, local people dig the mass graves themselves to prevent disease or to stop stray dogs from desecrating the bodies. The biggest mass grave near the St. Andrew Church. Church of St. Andrew. It's in the center of Bucha. That mass grave was the work of municipal and hospital employees. Bucha was still under Russian occupation when they began to dig. Russians allow them to do temporary cemetery. So they digged big trench and put like they are saying about 67 bodies. Eventually, there would be hundreds of bodies, which meant someone had to put a name to a face and then to its remains. And it was a huge logistical challenge. So you have to bury them even without documents. And when you did it without the documents, you have to dig them out. You have to exhume a neighbor in order to identify them. So in a way, Butch's dead were only put in the ground for safekeeping, to preserve evidence and organize it. And Mika decided to figure out a way to do that. What happened at the hands of Russian occupiers is well known now. What was remarkable, and less reported, was how people like Mika responded. They began to organize the millions of little digital clues that the Russians had left behind. 
establishing cause of death, tracking hundreds of DNA samples, gathering evidence of possible war crimes. And Mika, one-time digital innovator for Bucha, built a system to keep track of it all. Our system uh, was not able to manage such a big uh, amount of requests, looking for the bodies or looking for the disappeared people and, of course, to recognize the corpse. She created a system to modernize the way Bucha accounted for the dead. We asked our, our colleagues to provide us some smartphones and one iPad. Smartphones and an iPad were all she needed to get started. We had lots of imprisoned people. We had lots of killed people. They had police databases, missing persons reports, photographs of the disappeared. The problem was all these little clues were siloed. There was no central repository, no single database to search. Mika came to find out that even Ukraine's morgues were mostly pen and paper operations. Digitizing their records was something they had always intended to do, but never got around to. Mika decided it was time to change all that. And we received data from five morgues, and uh, we created the primary database. The primary database ingested everything the five morgues in and around Bucha knew about the 400 bodies they had examined, but didn't have room to keep. Not just sex and approximate age and hair color, but a collection of details that might help families find their loved ones. Tattoos, birthmarks, scars. Mika created a second database that cataloged who went into the mass grave and where. Then she cross-referenced the information, so when families arrived with details about their missing relatives, Mika knew exactly where to look. Her system allowed families to honor the dead, to hold real funerals and proper burials. But knowing precisely what happened to each of these people before they came to the mass graves of Bucha, Mika says it'll take a while. I think that in one year, in two years, maybe in three years' time, we will have the not only the names and the data from the morgue, but also the results of the investigations. It will be a painstaking forensic endeavor that will unfold in slow, incremental steps. So it's a big tragedy for Ukrainian families to have this situation. But the database helps anchor things. It offers some semblance of order and closure. We are still uh, helping families to recognize their killed relatives. But it's about more than just closure. Knitting millions of digital clues together can help international courts bring criminal indictments and trials. These captured scenes can help hold the guilty accountable. There's no question that digital means and satellite imagery, uh, often with other documentary information or witness testimony, really, I think, makes a number of these situations uh, much, much easier to prove. That's Ambassador Stephen Rapp. I first met him nearly 20 years ago when he was the chief prosecutor of a Rwandan war crimes trial. Since then, he's been involved in war crimes prosecutions in Sierra Leone and Syria, and then became an ambassador at large focused on war crimes at the State Department. So he's intimately familiar with what it takes to build these kinds of cases. Building a, a war crimes case is quite different than building a, a normal, you know, violent crime case. Violent crimes uh, uh, may involve some planning, but they're over and done with. They're like a bank robbery in a, in, in a few minutes. And uh, you can control the crime scene and you can take advantage of video cameras. In Bucha, crimes were committed over 32 days, all over the city. And while social media posts and CCTV and secret iPhone videos recorded by witnesses can all help connect perpetrators to the crime, finding those witnesses in a city of 30,000 at a time of war so they can testify at a trial many years later, that only begins to explain why prosecuting war crimes is so complicated. Rapp says the bodies themselves provide clues as to what happened. You have, uh, you know, mass graves with their bodies left on the street for, for three or four weeks, uh, with hands tied behind their back, with bullets in the back of heads. Uh, those are situations in which there are war crimes without question. But they can't tell the whole story. Then the issue becomes who committed those crimes, who's really responsible were they rogue units, uh, scared young soldiers who just acted out uh, their own impulses? 
Or was that part of a strategy in which uh, the military command really looked to intimidate the population? Before 2014, answering those kinds of questions was nearly impossible. Then two things happened. Surveillance went from something only governments had to becoming open source. And then a collective of citizen investigative journalists working for an organization called Bellingcat found a game-changing way to leverage digital information. I'd like to, I'd like to talk about uh, a very new way of investigating. That's from a documentary about Bellingcat called Truth in a Post-Truth World. The new way of investigating is all about following digital trails and leveraging information that is just out there for the taking if you know where to look. Like a time machine. We can go back to the day of the MH17 shootdown on Google Earth. Bellingcat has been behind a number of remarkable investigations. But the one that put it on the map was the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17, which just disappeared from the radar over Ukrainian airspace in 2014. Bellingcat made clear that there was a lot to discover with just a computer, a keyboard, and the will to find the truth. American officials believe that the Boeing 777 was brought down by a surface-to-air missile. Ukraine's government and rebel forces in the east accused... All 298 people aboard were killed. Bellingcat began to look through social media posts around eastern Ukraine, the area where the airplane went down. They managed to uncover the actual video of the Russian Buk surface-to-air missile launcher, not just coming into Ukraine shortly before the crash, but actually heading back to Russia the very next day, carrying just three missiles instead of four. Then Dutch investigators were able to find intercepted calls from that same period. And what they heard was confusion after rebels realized that they'd just downed a commercial plane, arguments about how to whisk the missile launcher back to Russia. In the end, three men, two Russians and a Ukrainian, were found guilty in absentia of the murder of all 298 people aboard. The story would have had a satisfying ending, but for one thing. Even nine years later, they're all thought to be still hiding out in Russia. And so it can take a very long time. Ambassador Rapp says war crimes are really committed by organizations, not individuals. And then you have to figure out how to attribute criminal responsibility uh, across that organization and, and prove, ideally, you know, the responsibility of people who really made the crime happen. People up the chain. People like Russian President Vladimir Putin. People who ordered the bombardment of civilian targets in Ukraine. People who told soldiers to show no mercy to the residents of occupied cities. Of course, it's not an easy way to prove the, this uh, system of command responsibility from the highest level. That's the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, Andrei Kostin. He was talking to CBS Face the Nation. We know who is responsible mm -hmm. for it. Because the crime of aggression is the mother of all of these crimes, of war crimes, genocide, because without aggression, there will be no other war crimes. And for that reason, for the crime of aggression, the highest politically and military leadership should be prosecuted and should be punished. Ambassador Rapp is advising the Ukraine government on how it might organize those trials. He says they need to be structured and systematic to bring speedier justice. In the meantime, he says Putin isn't doing himself any favors. By not having court-martials or investigations when news of fresh atrocities surface, he makes it easier to follow them up the chain. Indeed, uh, Putin giving awards uh, to, to at least one of the major units involved there as sort of heroes of, uh, and defenders of, uh, of the fatherland, you know, that, uh, that you can in fact impute responsibility all the way up to him, potentially. Which is what Mika wants. What do you think justice will look like? Putin in jail and every killer in every case. Mika, for her part, says while she's worried about what Putin might do next, her life in Bucha has to go on. So she's making those accommodations you have to make when you're at war. She carries her smartphone everywhere now because Bucha has instituted a new missile warning system. It sounds like one of those amber alerts we get on our phones here. So that's the signal that you should hide from another possible attack. My little son, he's seven years old. He's all the time talking about 
killing the Putin, about uh, Russians as enemies. He's back in school, but... Sometimes he has to spend time in the basement because of rocket attack warning. Which, she said, is a new reality she's having to get used to. The position that every minute you have to stop what are you doing and hide from the air attack. It wears on her, and she sees its effects on her son. He builds pillow forts to protect them both now, and has taken to singing Ukrainian patriotic songs. Sometimes they sing them together. Neither the glory nor the will of Ukraine has died yet, they sing. We will give body and soul for our freedom. This is Click Here. Next week on a special holiday episode of Click Here, we look at how hackers are more like the rest of us than you might think. Consider the case of Ryan Green. It was a fun thing, it was a powerful thing, and it was a challenge, which is how things really spiraled out of control. So why don't you tell me about that? Well? I'm Dina Templerest, and that's next Tuesday on Click Here. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. This week's episode was written and hosted by Dina Temple-Raston and produced by Sean Powers, Will Jarvis, and me, Jade Abdul-Malik. It was edited by Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski and fact-checked by Darren Ancrum. It contains original music by Ben Livingston, who also wrote our theme. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and was engineered by John Delore. That's it for this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.